0: Well, good morning, and just so grateful to be able to, to worship the Lord with you this morning. Uh, please turn your Bibles to the Book of Exodus. I want to I want to talk politics a little bit as we begin, very, very carefully, uh, but I, I don't want to get political. Okay, I want to describe some things, but not necessarily advocate. And we'll we'll see how well this goes. Um, it seems like every election cycle, at least every presidential election cycle, people talk about how divisive this election cycle is, and maybe they, they say something like, this is the most divisive election cycle that's ever existed in the history of our, our country, and they're, they're saying the same thing uh, this year as well, and I don't know, I don't think that's necessarily true, but, but what does seem interesting to me is, is how divisive this election cycle is for those who are part of of my political block, if you will, the the conservative evangelical Christian who who typically votes, well, just frankly, that typically votes Republican, right? And it seems like there are kind of three main camps that exist in this kind of this, and again, I I don't wanna, I'm not advocating anything here, I'm I'm just describing, I hope, kind of what I see happening and then tie it to something bigger here it seems like there's kind of at least three camps. There's there's kind of this camp that has said, uh, you know, a pox, a plague on both your houses. Uh, you know, I, I don't see any candidate that I'm, I'm comfortable voting for from either major political party, and, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm just, I can't vote for Hillary or Trump, and so I'm going to vote for this, a third party or not at all. That's kind of this, this one camp, and, and people say... So those of us who are there, they say, well, how can you do that? Why are you giving up? And those of us in this camp would say, well, look, I'm not giving up. Uh, the, the game's over. We lost. You know, you don't throw a Hail Mary after the clock has run out. Uh, it, whenever the ship and the lifeboat are both on fire, it doesn't matter which you get in. Um, if the, the cake and the ice cream are both poisoned, uh, you, it doesn't matter what you choose. Do you see, the, you see where I'm going with this? Very optimistic. Um, but you can tell people who are part of this first camp, kind of our, our self-righteousness, sanctimonious, uh, kind of annoying people to be around, um, that's one camp. Then there's kind of a, another camp that kind of exists right now, it seems, and this is like the question camp, and it, they just kind of seem like they, they go in this circle, and maybe that's where many, many of us are this morning and say, well, well um, I have to vote for someone. Well, I can't vote for, for Donald Trump. Well, I certainly can't vote for Hillary. Well, I have to vote for someone. Well, and they just kind of go over and over and over in circles on their Facebook, and it just kind of gets crazy, you know. And, and but those are that's one camp of us. And then maybe there's a, a third camp, and this this third camp has said, uh, you know, I, I have decided. And there's kind of varying degrees of excitement about this, but I, I have decided on a candidate, and this is the candidate that I'm going to support. And uh, every you know other people should support this candidate as well. And and that's where where some of us are this morning. And, and again, there's kind of varying degrees of excitement about this, this position that people take. I, I've, I've been getting letters and, and emails and, and uh, texts from people in kind of this camp, and uh, people f- feel very passionately. Some people feel very passionately, for example, about, about Donald Trump, and got a, a letter recently saying that, you know, I was a, a tool of, of Satan to, to bring about the destruction of the United States by not supporting him. Which uh, seems strong to me, but um, but seriously, you know, I, I appreciate the passion. Okay, I appreciate I appreciate the passion, and I understand. Okay, I understand. Uh, we we feel very strongly. Some of us feel very strongly about where our nation is, and some people feel very very frustrated by where we are. Right, and I'm sure that's, that's some of you this morning. Well, well, I want to offer some encouragement. Okay, I want to offer some encouragement. I believe that all of us who who love the Lord can think about some some big picture things about government and and take take comfort in these things as we think about god 's kingdom and our our call to participate in his kingdom we're in the Pentateuch we 're in these first five books of the Bible, and we are looking at this this idea that God's people are to live by faith. That's kind of the, the main idea of the Pentateuch. And now this morning, we come to the book of Exodus. And as we come to Exodus, we're going from the patriarchs, and the patriarchs were kind of the, the people that we focused on the, on the last part of Genesis, the descendants of Abraham. And we're kind of moving from these descendants of Abraham to a, a promised nation. Remember, God promised Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, I'm going to make a great nation of you. And now, in the book of Exodus, that's happening. The book of Exodus is, is really about how this nation comes into being, how God prepares a people to be a nation that honors and glorifies him, that proclaims him to the other nations. That's what the book of Exodus is about, people, people being called out of one nation to become a new nation and proclaim the excellencies of God. And as we come to the book of Exodus, people sometimes might ask, well, um, is the message of Exodus for us? Is the message of Exodus for us? And some people would say, no, this, this, this isn't for us. We kind of, are we, as we go through Exodus, we're going to encounter different passages, and you're going to come to a passage and you're say, boy, that, that passage really doesn't seem like it applies to me. You, you come to uh, Exodus, and, and you come to Exodus 23, and it talks about sowing your land and gathering its yield, this promised land. And boy, that doesn't really seem like it applies to me. Uh, Exodus 23 talks about the conquest of Canaan. You're like, boy, I, I don't think God is calling me to, to go and uh, conquer Canaan. Uh, I don't think that's what God wants me to do. And then he talks about, throughout the book of Exodus, building a tabernacle, t- tabernacle build a tabernacle, uh, do the, this with a lampstand, do this with the curtains, uh, do this with the pure beaten olive oil for the light, and you're like, boy, I am not seeing it. This doesn't really seem like it's for me. That's where some people, as they come to the book of Exodus, would say, look, this, this message isn't for us. We're not priests. We're not people wandering around the wilderness. We're not people that God has called to establish some sort of theocratic government. So this this isn't to me. But I would say the message of Exodus, even if Exodus wasn't written to us, Exodus is for us. It's for us. And here's what we find in Exodus. In the book of Exodus, God instructs his his people, the Israelites. And as God instructs the Israelites, he reveals some things about his character, as he gives the Israelites instructions about how they're to go into the land and live and, and what they're to do, he reveals some things about who he is, and he reveals some things about his, his will. And, and here's what we see as we go through the book of Exodus. We see the people called out of Egypt, redeemed out of Egypt. And as they are redeemed out of Egypt, they, they go to Mount Sinai, and in chapters 19 through 24, God makes a covenant with the people of Israel. And then, in chapters 25 through 40, he talks about how they are to worship him in light of this covenant. So, chapters 19 through 24, as we get to those chapters, we're going to see this this covenant that God makes with his people of Israel. And really, that's kind of the, the linchpin of the entire book of Exodus, one of the hinges of the entire book of the Pentateuch, and really... Just a, a crucial section of Scripture for us to look at and to understand. And we're going to look more at that as we go on. Jesus in John chapter 5, verse 46, would say, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. That's John five forty six. If you believed Moses, Jesus said, you would believe me, for Moses wrote of me. And so here in the book of Exodus, I believe we find some things about the promised Messiah. We find some things about God's will for his people and how we are to live in obedience to him. So Exodus, Exodus about, is about these people of Israel being redeemed by God to become a kingdom of priests. And so for us, as we look at the, the Exodus and the people of Israel, as we see that they are a picture for how you and I are supposed to live as well. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, quoting Moses from Exodus 19. As he talks about this covenant that God makes with his people, Moses talks about it. Peter quotes what Moses writes in Exodus, and he says this to us. This is, these are Peter's words to us, quoting Moses' words to the Israelites in Exodus. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so just as the people of Israel are redeemed by God and and called out of Egypt to become this people, this kingdom of priests, so you and I have been called by God to to be a a nation, to be a people for, for God's glory to proclaim his excellency. So, what is the book of Exodus about for us? The book of Exodus, for you and I, is about how we have been redeemed by God to proclaim Christ. And just as the Israelites are to go into this land and live a certain way, you and I are called by God to go into the land in which He's called us and placed us sovereignly and and to proclaim Him, to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah to the culture in which God has placed us. That's the book of Exodus for you and for me. So let's let's talk, with that as the background, let's talk a little bit about chapter 1 of Exodus and what is taking place. So if, if Exodus is about the people of Israel being called out by God to become this kingdom of priests proclaiming, the the promises of the Abrahamic Covenant, fulfilling the promises of the Abrahamic Covenant to be a blessing to all nations, if that's the big picture of Exodus, this kingdom of priests being established by God. What's chapter one? Chapter one begins to describe this conflict between the kingdom that God is establishing and the kingdom that Pharaoh oversees. There's God's kingdom, that he's called his people to be a part of, all the way back from Genesis chapter 12, and there's this kingdom that Pharaoh is a part of, and these kingdoms are going to collide. And how are we to view those collisions of kingdoms? Because just as this happens for the people of Israel it happens for you and i as well as god has called us to be a part of his kingdom proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us into his marvelous light we are going to inevitably we're going to inevitably collide with whatever kingdom god has placed us in politically and how do we handle that some of us handle it by getting really excited about the political kingdom. A lot of us place a lot of hope and excitement in whoever is elected president or senator or mayor or congressman. Some of us put a lot of hope and trust in this political kingdom, and I would suggest to you this morning that that's foolish. Some of us are very apathetic. Politics, who cares? Not my deal. I would suggest to you that that's not a very biblical response. Some of us respond with fear, we're afraid of the government. We're afraid of, of what's going to happen. We're afraid of the future. And I would suggest to you that that's not very biblical as well. Let me give you three thoughts here from this passage here in Exodus 1 about how we respond when kingdoms collide. And what we're going to see is that the collision of kingdoms really provides us simply new opportunities to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. The collision of kingdoms provides you and I new opportunities to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. If God has created us to be this kingdom that proclaims the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light, the collision of kingdoms provides us ample opportunity to do exactly that. Here's the first thing I want us to think about when it comes to kingdoms. Number one, God establishes kingdoms to promote good and restrain evil. Why does God even do this? Why does God establish kingdoms? God establishes kingdoms to promote good and restrain evil. Here in uh, verses 1 through 7, we we see the beginnings of this establishment of the nation of Israel. What God has promised to do in Genesis chapter 12 and repeated in Genesis 15 and 17, he repeated to Isaac. Uh, Now that, that promise is beginning to be fulfilled, he's establishing a kingdom. The blessing of God is upon the people of Israel, and it causes them to be fruitful. It says they they brought in uh, the sons of Israel to Egypt. They come with Jacob. They come with their household. There's 70 persons. Joseph is already there in Egypt. Then uh, the generation dies. But, verse 7, the people of Israel are fruitful. They increase GREATLY, they multiplied, uh, they, they spread out throughout the land. In other words, God is fulfilling his promise to establish a nation. God likes nations. In fact, not only does he, he love his people, but he's established his people to reach other nations that he's established. Joseph, when he comes at the end of the book of Genesis, when he comes to Egypt, God is not sending Joseph as a curse upon the Egyptians. He is sending Joseph as a means of grace. He's saying, look, here's Joseph. I'm going to preserve this, this nation. I'm going to preserve these people. We see this throughout Scripture. In fact, let me give you just five thoughts here about God's purpose for government. We see in Scripture five things he wants. One, God wants government to exist. He wants government to exist. Daniel chapter 5 Daniel is is praying to God, and he says in in, uh, Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, he says that God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He he establishes a political system. So God wants government to exist. Secondly, God wants government to protect the weak. You've heard of the Proverbs 31 woman, right? You've heard of the Proverbs 31 woman. Do you know there's also a, a Proverbs 31 king? So Proverbs 31, King, before uh, King Lemuel's mother talks about the Proverbs 31 woman, she says this in verse 9, and she talks about what a king should be. You know, Open your mouth, she says, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Again, Daniel, in Daniel chapter 4, verse 27, Daniel's talking to Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, look, king, and, and remember, Daniel's not talking to a a, a believing king he's not talking to an israelite king he's talking to a pagan king and god this is very important i believe god has these expectations not just on uh, believers but god has these expectations upon all peoples everywhere this is part of his common grace daniel four twenty seven again uh daniel speaking to a pagan king he says king let my counsel be acceptable to you break off your sins by practicing righteousness Break off your sins, your iniquities, by showing mercy to the oppressed, and there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. What is Daniel telling Nebuchadnezzar? That God expects even pagan kings, those who wouldn't acknowledge his name and worship him, he expects even pagan governments to to practice righteousness, to, to protect the vulnerable, the poor, the weak. Psalm 82 How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak, the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So what what does God desire from a government? Well, he wants it to exist, and God wants it to protect the weak. He also wants it to punish the wicked. God also desires a government to punish the wicked. Ecclesiastes 8 talks about how evil uh, evil flourishes when an evil deed is not uh, punished quickly romans 13 talks about rulers are a terror to bad conduct god desires even pagan governments to punish the wicked a fourth thought here god wants a government to promote peace god wants a government to promote peace Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, this is an instruction to all of us. You can't say, well, I'm, I'm not very politically minded. This is, this is a command by God given to us in 1 Timothy 2 to, to pray for those in government. He says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, God desires governments to promote peace. Jeremiah 29, same thing. Uh, as the people are carried into exile, he says, pray for the peace of the place that you're going into exile. Uh, in, it, in its welfare, you will find welfare. In other words, in that place that you're, you're called to, uh, when it does well, you'll do well. And finally, God wants a government to serve the good of its citizens. He wants the government to serve the good of its citizens. For Samuel twelve, Samuel says, Look, you can testify, I, I haven't I haven't defrauded you in my leadership. I haven't defrauded you. He said, Well, Daniel, uh these these things are you advocating that we as, as Christians try to establish a theocracy, a, a government that's that's designed to, to uh, like force people to become Christians and worship God? And and, and absolutely not. You know that, that's not what we're talking about here. You know the word covenant, I, I believe, is a very important word. And in, again, in chapters nineteen through twenty four, this is important for us as we think about how to interpret Exodus. In chapters 19 through 24, there's going to be a covenant established. And remember, a covenant is an agreement between two people or between uh, two groups of people. And in chapters 19 through 24, there's this covenant established between God and a group of people. And there is an expectation that these people establish a government in keeping with this this covenant that God is is describing. And I think that there are are two dangers that we can fall into as we think about that covenant that God made with the people of Israel. And and by the way, my my thinking here is very influenced by a book called uh, Progressive Covenantalism uh, by a bunch of authors that I can't remember at the moment. But my thinking is, that's, that's my citation there. Not very good, but there's two dangers as we think about this covenant that God made with the people of Israel and, and how it applies to us. One danger is to see a lot of discontinuity. Say, you know what, that, is, that was God's word to them and it has nothing to do with me and so I, I don't even need to think about what God said in that, that old covenant. But the other danger The other danger is is to not see enough discontinuity, to see too much continuity, to say, okay, well, God said that to them, therefore, that's the, the same thing that he's saying to me. And scripture is very clear. Yes, there was this old covenant, but it's also very clear that now there is a new covenant, and that new covenant that God has made with his people, those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, that's the covenant by which our relationship with God is defined. Here's kind of a Here's an illustration and it is it's weak, but maybe it gets at some of some of what's happening here. Hopefully this is somewhat helpful without don't don't carry this illustration too far. But imagine imagine there's a, a father and he has this this child, a son. The son's very young and the, the father doesn't have a lot of resources and, and he and his wife sit down and they they make this will of a will for what would happen after they they die to their their son. But then years go by, they have additional children, they also maybe maybe they adopt some children, their their family becomes larger, their wealth grows and and now they create a a new will. And this this new will is the will by which this this last will and testament is the means by which this 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 inheritance is going to be received by their their children and, and grandchildren and and that means that the old will is is no longer in force but does that mean that it didn't reflect the the character and the will and the desires of the father no it's still a, a useful thing to to look at and to to glean as one wants to know this father who created it so we're not talking about establishing a theocracy the same way that we see God establishing a theocracy here in Exodus, but the things we learn about God and his desire for government, I believe, continue. And, and these, things that, these things that we're seeing here are throughout God's word and, and they're, they're means of common grace. Anyone, anyone believer, non-believer, should see by God's grace the value of these things for government to do. Now, here's the second thing about kingdoms, though. Here's the second thing, worldly kingdoms inevitably, worldly kingdoms inevitably abuse their power in order to preserve it. It's inevitable. And that's what happens here in in this story. Look at what happens. It says, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, from the time that Joseph dies until the time that we pick up the narrative again in Exodus chapter 1, there are some so there are a lot of things that have happened with the geopolitical scene in which Egypt exists. Sometime during that time period, there was a there was a shift of dynasties in Egypt. There's a period I think of about a hundred years where this this dynasty this dynasty called the Hyksos dynasty reigned, and this was a, a group of people of Semitic origin. So kind of. Uh, similar to the Jews, kind of distant cousins or whatever. And they they came, they kind of invaded Egypt, and they took over reigning as, as pharaohs. And so that was the line that existed. And then there was a rebellion against those people. They were expelled from the country. And the natural Egyptians took over reigning again. And so what's happening here in verse 8 is, Probably, this is, this is probably after the Hyksos dynasty, and, and there's this, this new king, and he doesn't know Joseph, and in fact, he's probably suspicious of foreigners, right? In fact, that's what he said. He says, look, um, th- these this people of Israel, they're too many, they're too mighty. We need to deal shrewdly unless there's another war, I think is what he's saying there, and they, they join our enemies, they fight against us. This is, this is not a crazy idea. This has happened before. We don't want them to join our enemies, fight against us, and escape from the land, and so, they oppress them. They oppress them. The blessing of God on the Israelites is viewed as a curse by the Egyptians. And what they're willing to do to preserve themselves in their own position is, is abuse their power. There's injustice The foreigner becomes expendable, which is often the case in a nation that doesn't care about justice. The foreigner becomes expendable, the foreigner becomes a scapegoat, and the hard attitude of injustice reigns. There's exploitation of the other. It's inevitable when people desire to preserve their position of prominence. The movement from oppression to genocide is not lengthy journey. What happens next? They deal ruthlessly with the people of Israel, and yet it's, it's not effective. And so then the, the king of Hebrew, the king of Egypt says to the Hebrew midwives, uh, and uh, these two women are probably the kind of like the, the head midwives with other midwives under them. He says, look, when you're a midwife to the Hebrew women, uh, if it's a son, kill him. And the idea is we're going to do this quickly, we're going to do it cleanly, we're going to d- limit the exposure of people who know about this. And there's probably some also, some sort of um, warped thinking here. Look, if we if we do this, look, we're not killing everybody. We're just killing these these boys, and we're not letting them live much longer past being being born. It's, it happens very quickly. And and uh, what, what seems to happen later in the narrative is they don't they don't kill like the infants and, and toddlers, or they, they don't kill like the toddlers. They just kill these these babies after they're immediately born. And somehow, in their warped thinking, they thought that perhaps. The state, the um, the age of the child, uh, made it less morally reprehensible. Crazy, right? But that's what they think. There comes a point. There comes a point when a government refuses to fulfill those basic purposes for which God has established it. Right. God has established a government to promote peace, to protect the weak, to punish evil. There comes a point when a government refuses to fulfill those basic purposes for which God has created it and instead actually becomes an instrument to promote evil. This seems so far-fetched, right? a government promoting the slaughter of children believing that that the the age of the child somehow changed their moral culpability for causing this to take place not to get political but to talk politics Mrs. Clinton has, recently, has done something in her career that, that I find rather extraordinary in, in, a, in a bad way, right? Whenever uh, President Obama passed the Affordable Care Act, regardless of how you feel about that, he at least said, he at least said that the Hyde Amendment, something called the Hyde Amendment, would, would be in effect. And the Hyde Amendment basically says you can't use tax dollars to, to fund abortions. And Mrs. Clinton, this campaign and, and previously, is, is advocating doing away with the Hyde Amendment, using tax dollars uh, to fund abortion. As she says, any right that requires you to take extraordinary measures to access it is no right at all. And so she says, as long as we have something unjust, she would say, on the laws, uh, an unjust law on the book like the Hyde Amendment, making it harder for low-income women to exercise their full rights, they, they don't really have that right at all, is what she's saying. That's extraordinary to me. It's frightening in the sense that, it's frightening that our, our elected leaders have, have, potentially elected leaders have, have come to this point in, in their thinking. Whenever a leader says something like that, when, when a leader begins to, in my mind, and, and you, can, you can think through this in, in your own mind, your own conscience as well, but whenever a leader begins to uh, abuse their power in order to, to preserve it, to say things that, that are so reprehensible to what God has said a government is to be, how do you respond? And, and I believe that there are some really wrong responses that we can be tempted to have. One is despair. I, I, I give up. It, it's over. It's over. Another wrong response is, is misdirected anger, to, to look at our elected officials and, and to categorize them as, as evil incarnate, say, you know, this person is the, the total summation of evil, and I, I look at them and I, I just become angry and furious with them because they're so evil. That's, that's not, I believe, a biblical understanding of sin. It's not a biblical understanding of the fallen condition. The reality that, that people can be very deceived, be sinful, and yet still be recipients of God's grace. I believe misdirected anger is also a wrong response. Then also just a, a complacency, going along to getting along, would be a wrong response. So how should we respond? Well, Here's, here's a third thought. God's people must submit to the government but disobey appropriately when commanded to do evil. God's people must submit to the government, but disobey appropriately when commanded to do evil. What happens here? I love that phrase, right? They've just been commanded, the midwives have been commanded by one of the most powerful people in the world to do something wrong, and can you imagine standing before the, this powerful ruler being told to do something wrong? And the amount of fear you would feel as you think about defying this monarch. And, and what does the text tell us? It says, but the midwives feared God. Even as they contemplated the power of Pharaoh, their fear is, is of God. And the idea of of going against what he says is more fearful to them than going against what Pharaoh says. They fear God, and they don't do it. He says to do this, and they say, no, I fear God, not going to do it. They let the male children live. Obviously, eventually, this comes to Pharaoh's attention. He calls to them and says, why have you done this? And the midwives give this response in verse 19. They say, well... The Hebrew women aren't like Egyptian women. They're vigorous. They give birth before the midwife comes to them. And the question there is, did they lie? And if so, is God saying that this is permissible? And I don't believe the text gives us much information there. All it tells us is that this is what they said. And perhaps there was some truth to what they were saying. Maybe they, they intentionally delayed arriving at the, the, uh, where the, the women were giving birth uh, perhaps they did just flat-out lie to him, recognizing that he had overstepped his authority and uh, didn't have the, the right to the truth there. The text doesn't tell us. What the text does tell us in verse 20 is that God dealt well with the midwives. He blesses them because of their fear of him, and the people multiply. We'll, we'll talk more about that perhaps in the Post-Sunday app. But The main thing of the, the text is, is this idea that the, the midwives fear God, so they don't obey Pharaoh, and God blesses them, and the multiplication of the, of the people continues, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant continues unabated, and Pharaoh continues his opposition to the king of, of the kingdom of God, commanding all his people to kill the Hebrews. Let, let me talk about two things. I want to first talk about some principles. For submission to government, and, and then I want to talk about some principles for when we would disobey government. Let me give you some principles for submission, and a couple passages I want to talk about. One would be Romans 13. Here's what Paul says in Romans 13, and we've, we've alluded to it already. Let, let me read part of it. It says, "...let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God." You must submit, you must submit to the government in those spheres, in those spheres in which God has given it authority, even if it acts unjustly or unwisely. You must submit to the government in those spheres in which God has given it authority, even if it is acting unjustly to to an extent or unwisely. In other words, I can't just say, you know what, uh, the government is is treating uh, treating people poorly. Therefore, I'm, I'm not going to pay taxes. Or this this uh, this traffic light, uh, the you know the the yellow is too long. This is stupid. I'm just going to go ahead and ignore that. You know, whatever we say, this 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 government rule is un, is kind of not fair to me, or it's not very well thought out, so I'm just going to ignore it. You guys are looking at each other. People are poking each other. Not, not. Uh, I'll probably talk more about that than post-Sunday app, too, because I've got a really interesting justification for some things. But that's the principle. Submit to the government those spheres in which God has given it authority. Number two... You must submit with gospel-fueled objectives. You submit with gospel-fueled objectives. As I submit to the government, I, I have this understanding that submitting to the government proclaims the gospel. First Peter chapter two, he says, submit to the Lord's sake for ev- to every human institution. And he says in verse fifteen, for this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So I'm submitting, and as I submit to the government, it's proclaiming the gospel because people don't have a reason to accuse me. So am I going to obey silly government regulations and turn in the right forms and stand in the right lines? Sure, why not? Because it's a means for me to proclaim the gospel. Another principle of submission is, I submit ultimately not to people, but to God. I'm submitting, as I submit to the government, I'm submitting not to people, but to God. He says, for the Lord's sake, submit to every human institution. Another principle, you must submit with a right heart attitude. Ish. In other words, an attitude of disrespect to the people that God has placed in authority over us is, is not a hard attitude of submission. Calling them names, uh, saying unkind things about them, failing to pray for them, that is not submission because the heart attitude is not right. And the final thing about submission, and I think this is encouraging, when we submit, we can take comfort in the fact that we are not culpable for the evil decisions that others make. You say, Well, if I if I submit to the government, I'm saying I agree with them. No, no, you're not. I love, I love that Jesus how Jesus answered the Pharisees in Matthew 22. And I love that scripture includes this story because it helps me as I think about even paying my taxes. You know, that they say Um, In Matthew 22, he's tested, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay taxes to this pagan government that's oppressing us or not? And Jesus says, look, who's who's on the coin? Caesar. Okay. Uh, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. You're not culpable for the things that are evil that the government does that you haven't supported. You say, well, Daniel, I want to disobey. (laughs) when do I disobey? Here are some principles for disobedience, right? Here are some principles for disobedience. Number one, you must disobey. You must disobey when government clearly oversteps its sphere of authority and commands you to do that which is evil. Peter and John are told, don't don't preach anymore in the name of Christ. And how they respond in Acts 4, they say, look, you judge for yourself if it's right or not, but we must continue to proclaim Christ. We must obey God rather than men. Several years ago, Sweden prosecuted a pastor and jailed him for, quote, collecting Bible citations on the topic of homosexuality because that's hate speech. Just collecting the Bible verses was viewed as hate speech. You must disobey when government clearly oversteps its sphere of authority. Another principle of disobedience. Your disobedience must be motivated by love for God, not love of self or hatred of authority. Okay, does that make sense? Your, your disobedience is not motivated by, oh, I hate, I hate the government, so I need to disobey, or, or uh, this is the best thing for me. No, my, my disobedience is motivated because I love and fear God. I love and fear God, and and even as I love my government and the people that God has placed over me, I, I must obey God rather than men. But it's not motivated by hatred of government. It's motivated by love of God. A third principle of disobedience, your disobedience must be limited in scope. Okay? Your disobedience must be limited in scope. The midwives disobey in that area in which they've been commanded to disobey god. Peter and John disobey in that area in which they've been commanded to disobey god. And so in some of the words I can't say well be, because I disagree with this decision that the government has has made, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to lead this 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 widespread in my heart and other people's lives this this widespread rebellion against all aspects of the government. My disobedience to my government is limited in those areas in which it calls me to disobey God. It's limited. And then finally, and, and this is where I would encourage us to think very carefully this morning, uh, you must be prepared as you disobey to face the consequences of disobedience. I think that's an important thing to think about even this morning. I'm not a uh, radical conspiracy theorist, I'm I'm not a doom and gloomer, but I think it's a very wise, wise thing for a person to make the decision in their heart, even, even now, I'm going to obey God rather than men. And I'm prepared to deal with whatever consequence my government asks me to face because of my obedience to God rather than men. I'm ready to suffer the consequences of losing my tax-exempt status as a church. I'm willing to uh, to incur the cost of, of fines if I say things that the government disagrees with. If they're what God says, I'm ready to lose my job. I'm ready to make. I'm ready for it to be harder for me to do business. I'm ready to lose respect. I'm ready to suffer whatever my government says. I need to suffer if I choose to disobey. I don't know. I don't know what God calls us to, what God will specifically call our body to. But I know this. What happens when these kingdoms collide? What happens when these kingdoms collide and and I'm forced to obey God rather than men and and I reflect my fear of God? Well, what, what happens is what Peter says. We proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness and into light. We proclaim the one we've been redeemed to proclaim. The collisions of kingdoms is not something that should cause us fear. The collisions of kingdoms is not something that should divide us into these various camps. The collision of kingdoms should be a thing that excites us because it is an opportunity for us as a kingdom of priests to proclaim our great hope in the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus. We thank you for the life that we have Through his name, we pray that we be faithful to proclaim it for your glory. In his name we pray. Amen.